A number of years ago, I was lecturing at the local university on a class called The Good Life. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the art of the good life or the good life itself is an ancient philosophical way of discussing ethics, virtue. It's not an ideal image of, uh, of happy, comfortable living. It's the idea of life lived rightly. And so we're discussing all kinds of ethical questions and challenges and even our own history. We are probing the history of our own nation and our own communities, asking ethical questions, scrutinizing it. Somewhere along the line in the debate of the class, because the class would often erupt, and erupt into a debate, somebody said something about that grisly time in American history called the Civil War, that they could not believe it that ever in our country there would be a group of people who would think it would be morally okay to own another person as a slave. It was a young white man sitting up to the right of the class. And then he goes on to say that he, if he lived in such a time, he would never, no matter where he lived, no matter what state he lived in, no matter the governor, no matter what, he would never, ever, ever be a part of the slave trade in our society. Now, he is speaking with moral outrage about slavery. And rightfully so. Slavery is something that is absolutely evil. But dare I make a suggestion about this young man? His idea is hardly heroic, hardly virtuous even. It's, it's no thing to say today in 21st century America that you're against slavery. It's not really ethically heroic at all. It's just kind of, yeah, of course you are. But I think he felt like he needed to say something about himself. And then over here in the back corner is an African-American guy and she goes, please. Now, they were all friends in this class, so they could debate in love. And I said, well, what do you have to say? And she said, please, you mean to tell me that if you were living in that day and time, you know for certain you would have been an abolitionist? You know for certain you would have been morally opposed to slavery? Yes, I would. No, you, well, I don't know about that. And the class erupted in debate and other examples came to the fore. Someone said that if they lived in Europe during Nazi, the Nazi occupation of Europe, they have no doubt in their mind they would have hid the Jews in the attics of their homes. No worries, no questions asked, no fear. That's the right thing to do. Still another person said, if they were alive during the civil rights era, they would have been marching right next to Dr. King in the front of the lines. No fear. That's the way it is. That's right. Everything else being wrong. Well, I think it would have been right to do all those things. But we have this sort of sense of presentism in our society. Have you ever heard of presentism? It's the idea that we normalize what our values are today and we look back with harsh judgments over the past. We skip over all the difficult things of culture, of education, about the way things have always been, about going against societal grains. And we think to ourselves, we would live the moral understanding of our present a hundred years ago. 
I don't know that that's the case, if we're honest. Now, I'm not justifying presentism, and I'm not justifying a nostalgic view of the past as if it were somehow uh, something we can just gloss over. Nostalgia should be reserved for holidays and gift cards, probably not huge moral conundrums. That being said, I do believe our society is faced with looking into its past, not through the lens of today, but to truly try to understand what was going on then. And only then can we start getting at some of the real challenges of our moral imagination. I think such a pursuit is actually necessary for the way we engage scriptures like this very one. You see, most of us have some sort of training in the Bible. You went to vacation Bible school, or like little Ruby, you were at church camp and you heard about the widow's might. Maybe you've been going to church your whole life, or maybe you even went to school and studied it. We got some sense of experience of the Holy Scriptures, but I, I have this warning for all of us. Caution. Because if you're comfortable with a good book, caution. If you're comfortable with what it says, caution, you may be too comfortable with it. You may not be reading it at the depth that you need to read it at. As one professor of mine used to say to me, son, when you read the Bible, you find the Bible reading you. So when we come to a text that's enlivened by the Spirit of God, it begins to wrestle in us and we can take things for granted. Take, for example, this scripture this confusing text in Matthew's gospel. There Jesus tells his disciples that they will be judged according to who their teacher or master is. And he even goes on to say, if you're you know, uh, underneath the authority of Beelzebub or the devil, people are going to say that about you or whatnot. They're going to judge you if they don't like you to say, hey, he follows the, the path of Beelzebub. Because we do share some of the teacher in our life, their, their influence, or we share some of their reputation. I went to study for my PhD in theology and I had a professor who was a true genius. One of the rare geniuses I've ever met in my life. Brilliant beyond imagination when it came to metaphysics, philosophy, theology, history, recall. Not so good with the personality. You might even say that he had some personality challenges. He could enter into a debate with somebody and rip them apart, leaving their argument tattered into pieces on the ground, but also leaving the dignity of that person tattered and on the ground. It's not a good look when Christians behave ungracefully. Well, I was at a conference once and I was lining up for this uh, buffet and there's a guy next to me. He was what they call a radical theologian. This means he was an atheist theologian. So he studied theology, but he was an atheist. I, I don't know why you would do that. Seems like a waste of time to me, but fair enough. And so he says, well, who's your doctor Vader? Who's your professor? See, we judge each other by strange things in academia. So I told him who it was, and then he began to, to sneer and make comments and say all kinds of negative things. And then for the rest of the time we were together, he treated me like I was my teacher. So I found a guy who's at a top-tier teaching post, at a top-tier school, 
who study with my professor as well. And I said, well, you know, am I ever going to be able to find a job having a reputation of following this guy? And he says, well, you know, you will have a reputation that you're here and that you're going to slash and burn things. But people will get to know you and know that you're not like that. Okay, fair enough. We are judged by who we follow. And if you're a Christian, a little Christ, if you're on the way of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Christ, which means a learner or student of Christ, Christ being your teacher, if that is you, if that's what you want to be, if that's what you claim in your life, if that's what you aspire to, then you will be judged accordingly. You will be judged by the same metrics that people judge Jesus. And he tells his disciples in that moment, be very very aware of this. People will judge you. But don't be afraid about suffering, suffering bodily harm. Don't be afraid of dying. Be rather afraid of he or she who can kill your body and your soul. You see, I think one of the things that we fail to remember in our present, when we look back in the past at this text, is the real life and the stakes for following Jesus. Jesus Christ came and claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, which is already controversial enough. The anointed one from God. I, I am the spokesperson of God. How does that play with you if I were to walk around telling you that? You might say, well, who's this guy? What's he know? Where's he coming from? So that's already unpopular. But then he says, my gospel, listen to my gospel, is to bring the kingdom of God. And as we discussed the last two weeks, this is a political concept. Jesus is establishing a new order in this world, a new way of accounting for justice, a new way of accounting of who's in and who's out, excluded and inclusion, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of finding power in the world. In short, we like to say Jesus came to turn the world upside down. It's an easier way to say it, no less comfortable being turned upside down. But when you bring a kingdom... In a world defined by empire, you're teetering on sedition. And then the disciples were told to call him Lord, my Lord and my God. You're, you're, the, you're the Lord, you're, you're the Son of God, you're the Lord. Well, that's offensive too. As we've talked before in years past, the early disciples would say, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. But in that day and time, under the shadow of the Roman Empire, nobody was Curios, nobody was Lord except for Kaiser. Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Yet in the midst of all that, Jesus is saying, your 100% allegiance belongs to me. Not me and a little bit for the nation, not me and a little bit for the empire, not me and keep some room for Caesar. No, Jesus is Lord and that kind of thing is sedition and it will get you killed and it got them killed. That's the thing. It got these early disciples hung on crosses, which was a death fitting a traitor. In the midst of all that, Jesus says, now you're going to be judged because you follow me now. Now don't don't worry about dying because you may die. 
And there are worse things than death. There are worse things than death. What are they? Jesus speaks of one who doesn't just kill your body, but kills your soul. Early in the 9 o'clock service, my friend reminded me that there's a great movie with Al Pacino called Scent of a Woman where he says, Charlie, nothing worse than a broken spirit, Charlie. I think that was a great impersonation, by the way. Don't you guys agree? Okay, disagree with me so I feel good about myself. Nothing worse than a broken spirit. What's that mean? Well, you and I, we don't live in the same world as the first century Christians. We're not often facing cross-death, are we? And though Jesus wants our total allegiance over every other political structure in the world, we live in a world with a political structure that makes room for our belief. We're not risking that very often. Are we risking anything? Well, some people in the world are. Colleen and I, we have a friend named Vili. She is brilliant. She's, you know, she's a scientific mind. She's a psychologist from Eastern Bloc Europe. She grew up under the weight of a communist regime that made it illegal to be a Christian. And one day, we were out to dinner with her and her very brilliant husband. And she was talking about how she came to know of Jesus. And I was talking to her husband, so I really wasn't paying attention, but I heard her say this phrase. It it came across the table with me with like just an aggressiveness. She said, and that's when the persecution began. So I looked at her husband and said, time out. Tell me more about this persecution. What are you talking about? I want to know your story. Well, she grew up in a place where she never heard of the metaphysical character called God. Can you, can you imagine living in a world like that? God, such a foreign concept to you. Her and her friends were reading this biography about this pop star, Michael Jackson. And he kept talking about God. And so they got curious, who's this God? Let's go find out who God is. <clears throat> the Lord works in mysterious ways. Amen. Through the pages of a biography about Michael Jackson, this led them into a seeking spiritual search of a kind I've never experienced personally. So as they went home and they looked for their parents' books and libraries, one of them found a family Bible. And not a Bible that they drew inspiration from. It's kind of the, a Bible that was kept under lock and key because it had elements of their family tree. They weren't looking at this Bible to read about the tree of life, just their history. And our friend Billy talks about how one night she was been studying, well, she'd been studying this Bible, and one night she was in her room. Now, she's a, she's a woman of science, and she's in her room, and she's reading. She's pouring over the pages and, during university, and she, she's reading the Gospel of John, and she says she has a mystical experience. A mysterious, miraculous encounter. The room lit up, and there was a warming sensation. And I don't know what else, but it left her changed right there in her bedroom. And then the persecution began. That's where I started hearing the story. I said, well, what persecution? 
Because I know we like to tell stories about maybe how persecution's coming for our Christians in America and that, and you know, maybe. But my life has never been threatened, nor have I really suffered what she's suffered. She suffered the indignities of public shaming, uh, male professors claiming that she had done things with them, lying about her character, grading her in particular ways. Because if you know her, she's an enchanting person, but she also doesn't keep her mouth shut about what she thinks and believes. And so she told the world, and the world turned on her. Even still, that's still foreign in reality. If we're honest, that's really kind of foreign for us. And so how do we understand this? In our present moment, we look back on a text that says, be careful, don't, or be, don't be worried. By the way, that's the command Jesus says the most. Don't be worried. Don't be worried about your body and who can kill it. Be worried about that can that kill your soul, your identity. It can wound your spirit to the point where you have no spirit no longer. I don't know, but maybe if we're not experiencing this as something, maybe it's because we're just not living as Christians very well. Maybe if we lived in such a way that said, I'm going to take care of children who are unwanted by their moms and dads. And we'll have neighbors turn their nose at us and go, how many kids are they going to have? Maybe if we realize that, that there are kids out there who are older and maybe had some trouble in school, but don't have a home to go to, we'd foster them because they need love too. And we, to follow Jesus says, love those kids, no matter how many difficult phone calls you have to have with the principal or how many times you have to leave your office to go intervene, to show someone that has been unloved, that they're actually loved. Or maybe it means enduring being made fun of because you actually give money to the church and you give money to organizations. And if you were just smart, you'd put it all in the bank and save it up anyway. Inflation's always coming, isn't it? Recession's always around the corner. Save it all up. Scarcity mindset. People make fun of you for it. Or maybe, maybe it's, we suffer. We would suffer more. If we were really following Jesus, we would suffer more by having our calendar interrupted by the divine appointment we find ourselves in, where somebody did not make an appointment on our calendar, but God made it, and a person showed up and needed our ear, needed our love, needed our time. Oh, in our society, if you give people time and an ear, that's a radical thing. People pay money for that because they don't get it. Friends, maybe it's we're not maybe it's we're not following our teacher well. I mean, I think if we we're following our teacher, we'd realize that we're the weird ones. We're supposed to be the weird ones, the ones whose allegiance is to God and not to our bank account, the ones whose allegiance is to God and not even the the structure of our country, one whose allegiance is solely to God through Jesus Christ, regardless of our comfort. And church is no longer about comfort. It should never be about comfort. This is not supposed to be a place for comfort. It's supposed to be a place of your safety. But it's supposed to be a place that includes the weird ones in the world that the world wants to leave behind. And that's how the church was built. The early Christians were the ones who were weird enough to love those whose society said was weird enough. And if we're not accepting folks that are deemed unworthy or weird enough, maybe we're just not being the church. 
Yeah, Jesus goes on. He talks about, I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's confusing, too, because Jesus is a peaceable God. He's promoted peace all through the gospel, and now it seems like he's promoting war. But is that what his sword is doing? He says he comes to separate this person from that person. Is that the aim and heart of God, to separate us from each other? It's not the logic of the gospel. It's a metaphor. Because if you single-mindedly focus your attention on your teacher and you follow the ways of Jesus, it's going to make you strange to those who have yet to decide to follow Jesus. Y'all have had dinner tables at Christmas and Thanksgiving in these recent years where maybe people in the same celebration didn't vote the same way as you. And you have a debate over it, right? We've had that. And if you haven't had it, you've seen it in the movies because it's so common, it's boring. If you can get that, then you can get what Jesus is saying. When you show up and you tell your mom and dad you're not going to go for the most lucrative thing in the world because you want to give and serve and love, they may not be happy with you. Because we're following our teacher more than anyone else, even my mom and dad. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that following the gospel could cost you your very life. It may. And if you want to find a life, you might just have to lose yours. Worry more about that which can wound your soul so that you're less of who you were called to be. I had a grandmother. She wasn't a very, uh, very good grandmother. She, she really was abusive to my dad and all his brothers, and she was going to inherit her uh, father's millionaire fortune. But there was a trust of money set up between her and her, grand, her sons, all equal. And she didn't like that. So whenever, whenever her father died, my great-grandfather died, she began manipulating and maneuvering to get all the money for herself. And she started trying to turn her sons against each other. And then she reached out to her grandchildren. I got a phone call when I was 17 years old from her asking me to explain to her about baby dedication. I tried to explain as best as I could at 17 what I thought that meant. And she told me my uncle and my new aunt, they were going to have their baby dedicated, but not baptized. And I explained the difference. And she told me all about how at their church, their dog was baptized. And I, I said, oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, I mean, I, I, what do you say when someone tells you that? I mean, great, I guess. And years later, as I was visiting my aunt and uncle, I found out that she even used that to try to turn family against family. She called my aunt and uncle and said, Jared says that if your baby dies, it's going to hell. But if my dog dies, my, baby, my dog's going to heaven. Maybe not sophisticated, but I saw somebody who allowed their soul to be killed for money. Took them away from their loved ones and their family. And she's gone on now. And what she's left behind is pain careful with a wounded soul because it hurts others. I wish I could have seen her follow the way of the teacher. Finding out who she's truly called to be. And finding a life by giving it away.
Don't worry about it. This whole business of following Jesus may get you killed. There are worse things. 